Welcome, everyone, to episode 122 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode, we're doing a double feature, where later on, we'll be reviewing Pixar's latest release, Soul. But first, we'll be reviewing the sequel to the 2017 DCEU film, Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman 1984. To help with that, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, before we get to today's reviews, how was your Christmas? It was good, Scott. As you can imagine, a little bit uh, more low-key than usual uh, with COVID and everything this year. Um, but, uh, you know, I I did get to go home. I did get to be with my immediate family, my parents and my brother. Um, and, you know, we just kind of hung out at home, ate a lot of really good food. You know, we had our gift exchange and stuff like usual. Um, and, yeah, it was it was uh, it felt like a normal Christmas for the most part, other than us not going to our relative's house in the afternoon like we normally would. But, you know, a, a low-key holiday with your family is not, you know, the worst thing ever. So I was glad to be able to to go home and, and see them for a couple of days. But yeah, now I'm back here and back to the grind, which is not something I'm used to, for sure, uh, having to go back to work this soon after Christmas. But, you know, I guess I'm in a, finally an adult now. Finally an adult. One thing that 2020 has brought us, Scott Harvey is finally an adult. But uh, uh, is it yet. fair to say that your that your best gift was just getting to watch Little Women for the ninth time? Uh, no, but it was getting to watch Little Women for the tenth time. Uh, uh, that tenth was time. probably uh, uh, one of my best gifts, if not my best gifts. I did get a new record player, which Scott, you can see, sort of right behind oh, me cool. to the right on it. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's 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 bigger. It's higher quality it's looks it has this nice old-fashioned look to it so i'm excited have you what's going to be the first track that you play well i uh so like obviously i didn't bring any of my records or anything home um but i did get two jason isbell albums for christmas and i played one of them while i was at home so that was the that was the first one was jason isbell and the 400 units most recent album from this year uh reunions so yeah, that's how I broke it in, and I'm excited to continue breaking it in. How quickly will you play Taylor Swift on it? I did order Folklore, but I was hoping that I would get it for uh, for Christmas. But she, you know, she makes things difficult because you can't buy her stuff on Amazon. You have to go through Target or through her official store. So I just ended up buying it for myself as a Christmas gift on Christmas. So yeah, uh, yeah I'll be, I'll definitely be playing that as soon as it arrives. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. All right. Well, since we're rolling back the clock on our podcast today and reviewing two films for our listeners, why don't we go ahead and jump right in? First up, we have the latest from the DCEU, Wonder Woman 1984, with a key duo of Patty Jenkins and Gal Gadot returning behind and in front of the camera, respectively. This year's follow-up picks up Diana Prince's story in the 1980s, over 60 years since the World War I setting of the first film and finds the titular superhero as an anthropologist at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. She befriends newcomer Barbara Minerva, played by Kristen Wiig, whose specialty is geology and gemology, and this new friendship breeds unexpected outcomes when Barbara is tasked with identifying a host of recovered artifacts 
one of which is the Dreamstone, an ancient antiquity that grants its holder one wish. Unwittingly, both Diana and Barbara have wishes granted before oil tycoon slash businessman Max Lord, played by Pedro Pascal, makes a large donation to the Smithsonian and snatches the artifact from under Barbara's nose. Once she understands the stone's power, Diana sets off on a mission to chase down Lord to retrieve the stone, but finds in her way Barbara, who is not ready yet to give up her wish. Scott, did this 1980s-themed follow-up to what many consider to be one of the best films in the DCEU work for you? Or does this film feel like it's a relic of the 1980s that maybe should never have seen the light of day 40 years later? Oh, me. This was a train wreck, uh, to be quite upfront about Quite upfront about it. This was uh, kind of most of what I dislike about almost all of the DCEU films, you know, once again being churned out there. The number one quality being that it's incredibly boring, incredibly boring. At two and a half hours, I had my interest was held for about 30 minutes, maybe. Um, and it starts off with this sort of like, like, I don't get necessarily the criticisms of people who are saying, oh, the problem is that this is too, like, goofy and cheesy. No, like, that's what I wanted it to be. And it wasn't that, right? Like, it starts off with, like, okay, this thing in, I can't even think of the name of the, like, the, like, Greek name or whatever of the place where she's from. Um, but, yeah, there's, like, a uh, cannonball run, basically, a Th Themyscira edition. Uh, which is kind of fun. Then there's this mall scene where she's uh, where, you know, Wonder Woman is doing some stuff, saving some people, you know, uh, doing her thing in a mall. And, you know, it's the 80s and uh, it's a fun setting. And I was like, all right, you know, this could be all right. Um, like that that's the kind of like goofy tongue in cheek, like, you know, somewhat over the top um, feel that I wanted from this movie. And actually, you know, that's kind of what I liked about birds of prey earlier this year, which was um, my favorite movie in the DCEU so far is that it just was gleeful over the top. Um, you know, just a real sense of fun. I think about the action scenes and everything, uh, you know, in, in that movie. And I just felt after that point, this became a soulless experience. Um, Wonder Woman 1984 did. And I liked the first Wonder Woman. I do think that it has third act problems. Uh, that's not an original thing to say. That's kind of how most people feel about it, I think. But I, I'm in agreement there. But I did like the film. I think it was well directed by Patty Jenkins. Gal Gadot was a fine heroine in the film. Um, but I have serious questions about where this franchise is going um, after this movie. Uh, because... Uh, well, it's going they straight to the third film, Scott. <laughs> yeah, I know, unfortunately. Uh, and Patty Jenkins, again, Patty Jenkins and Gal Gadot teaming up. I mean, Gal Gadot was always going to continue doing this, but I don't know if Patty Jenkins is the right person to lead this forward, I guess is what I'm saying. Because uh, I just feel like this movie wasn't really about Wonder Woman. Like, she is almost a supporting character in the film. There's a lot of Steve Trevor. There's a lot of Maxwell Lord. There's a lot of Barbara Minerva. Um and Wonder Woman is just kind of there to save the day and doesn't really undergo any sort of character development throughout the movie, except, you know, her, of, of course, I mean, this is another major problem I have is that like her personality, her entire personality is that she loves her boyfriend and this is her boyfriend, Steve Trevor. And I guess the character development, if you want to find any, is that she has to like learn to 
get over him, whatever, by the end of the movie. But I don't see that as that significant, right? Like this movie kicks off 70 years after the first film. Why was she not over Steve Trevor after 70 years? Um, so much time has passed when this movie kicks off uh, that it just makes her feel like a very one-dimensional character that her entire existence um, is like revolving around her boyfriend and Steve Trevor. Um, and, uh, you know, e- even up until the point of like, uh, you know, the wishing stone, the world's going to be destroyed, whatever. Like she, she is so reluctant to let him go. Um, even though she's lived without him for 70 years, for 70 years. Um, I, I don't know. I just, I, I didn't feel like that was the type of step forward that we need in depicting a female superhero on screen. And honestly, that was another one of my least favorite parts of the original Wonder Woman was that they did have a romance. Like, I just felt like there should have been, this should have just been like platonic. If you're going to introduce this character, I don't care what's in the comic books, just make, make a good movie. Um, you know, it, it should have been like a platonic relationship between the two of them. And when it went down the romantic lane, I felt like it wasn't doing enough justice to like the agency that this character is supposed to um, demonstrate. But then, right, he he dies. And so I was like, all right, well, that's fine. They're going to move on uh, in this movie. And no, it turns out they're not really going to move on. We're going to do a reset. We're going to bring him back. He's going to we're going to have a bunch of lame body swap. And actually, honestly, it's a very uncomfortable body swap stuff that happens. But then we're going to have a bunch of lame like fish out of water gags when he come, shows up in the 1980s and he doesn't know what trash cans are. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Um, and then, you know, by the end of the movie, maybe she's over him. But you know what? Maybe she's not. Maybe she's going to spend another 70 years long for him. And, you know, maybe we'll just bring him back in the next film. Why not? Uh, because people like Chris Pine. Uh, so I just felt like this movie, it was boring. It uh, didn't move the series or the DCEU or whatever. Like, I, I don't care about it being connected to the universe. Again, Birds of Prey wasn't that connected to the universe, and I kind of liked that. Um, I just wanted a good movie. I wanted something that moved us forward after Wonder Woman, and I don't feel like I got that with this movie. I think that the new characters are okay. I think Pedro Pascal is pretty good. I think the entire movie should have been on his level, right? Like, that was the sort of yeah, over-the-top He's in a different movie. movie. <laughs> yeah, and he's in the better version of this movie. Um, unfortunately, no one else was, and that includes Patty Jenkins, who made it. And so this this is a huge misfire, in my opinion. And I did not enjoy watching almost any of this eleven hour nightmare. <laughs> well, Scott, I don't know if we've had this in a while, but I also am not a huge fan of this movie. But seemingly for completely different reasons than you, because I think a lot of the things that you've laid out are not things that I had that much of a problem with. I mean. Ironically, as much as I just had a dislike for the romance between the like how it was done, like the narrative of the romance between Gal Gadot and Chris Pine in the first film, I think the sequel, you know, it takes that like, look, they had this romance. She's like he is someone who is extremely important to her. And yes, like the character arc is that she's going to get over him over the course of the movie. Like she has this sort of like you know, one final like he, he you know, you get your wish, you get you get to have one final night with the person that you loved, even though they're gone. And then you have to move past them. And that's essentially what this movie is. And some of the, I mean, like, honestly, like one of the, like some of the jokes that actually work in this movie are the ones where they flip sort of the whole fish out of water of the first film where, you know, Wonder Woman is a fish out of water in 
you know, 19 teens, England and society in general. And they flip that. I think to honestly, I think to good effect when they do it with Chris Pine, like did all the jokes land? No, but I appreciate that. What they did is they, they're swapping that from the first movie where, you know, he is the one who's sort of leading her in her own film where she is the one who has to like, you know, hold his hand through, you know, acclimating to the, but once you get past that central conceit, aren't you just watching the same jokes over and over again? Just not just with different, you know, like you said, the personalities being swapped. Like, I feel like that sounds good in theory, but in execution, it's just like, well, this is kind of the same thing that we just watched in the last movie. Yeah. I mean, the difference is, is that it was funny and it, and it worked. I, I mean, like, I, I don't know what else to say. Like, sure. It's the same, but it, it was funny and it worked like half of the shows that everyone loved are like the same jokes every single episode, but it works and it's funny. Um, so I, I personally didn't have a problem with that. I, I look, I think overall though, I run into a similar problem with you is that like, you know, I loved the first 20 minute, however long that freaking really long opening scene is on, on the mascara, like stupidly long. I don't know why it's so long, but I enjoyed that. And like, honestly, I didn't enjoy very much after that. Like that, that was the best part of the movie. Um, yeah. Even though it had absolutely nothing to do with the story like, whatsoever. Like it could completely edited that whole first 20 minutes of the movie out. And like the, the narrative is the same with the film uh, just because Hippolyta tells her that she, she tr truth, like outshines lies all the time. Like you don't need that opening scene for it to mean anything at all um, in the film, even though it does technically connect back to like one of the themes later on. Um, and just like every, every scene in this film is like, way too long like that mall scene that you'd like i didn't enjoy that i thought it was so cheesy like you, what you're saying is like it's not cheesy enough like this, this movie was like so campy and so cheesy for me like i didn't enjoy the mall scene at all i think that honestly like the freaking slow-mo like break like fourth wall breaking almost like looking to the camera is like so freaking campy like oh my gosh it's like it's so I, I, when you said that it's not cheesy See, not like, the top. like this it's so over the top like, in, all, like that the scene, amount of yeah, slow-mo so to be ridiculous that's why I liked that scene. But then I was just bored watching nothing happen for the next hour, hour and a half. Like yeah, there was, there's like, no very, very little that. happens. Yeah. Very little happens in the middle third of this movie or middle third of this film, which was like, whatever I, it was interesting for a little while. Um, but then like, at some point you just realize there's like, there's only like four characters in this movie, but there's like too many characters in the movie. There's just like, there's like still too many characters in the movie somehow. I don't well, know. They're turning their focus in the wrong place again. Like they're, they're sure. not putting enough on a focus on Wonder Woman. There's there's yeah. so much of Pedro Pascal Emphasis on and Kristen Wiig. Yeah. Well, specifically Kristen. Look, I, I think Kristen Wiig is like fine. Like I like in the, film, the same thing. Like, it's it's like it 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 was good, but I'm just like, I don't like honest to God, like, is this character even important to the movie? Like, do you even need this character in the film? Because all you need is Pedro Pascal in the movie for like the whole for the film to work. You just apparently need someone else for Diana to like kick around in the final act. I, like, I don't know. Um, but look, I just think that the movie loses its way really quickly. And it like this movie should have been an hour shorter. Like this movie should have been 90 minutes long. Like, honestly, like this movie is just so freaking long. Um, I was I don't I wouldn't say I was bored out of my mind, but I was just like I was like, it's very uncommon for me to like actively in the moment be like, I cannot believe how long this scene is. And that was regularly happening in this movie. And then I think this film, like again, has like third act problems. Like it's just like the, the whole final scene, like climactic scene between her and, and Pedro Pascal's character and this like satellite room or what like, oh my God, it's so freaking boring. Like I didn't even know what was going on in the, in, in the scene, honest to God. And I thought I'd pay attention the whole time. Um, I just had no, I just had no clue what was going on. Uh, in that scene or and like how even if it worked and this is the thing 
about the whole conceit of this movie is that like none of it makes sense. Like literally none of it makes sense. Like the like the Dreamstone, look, I get it. It's a rock, it grants a wish. It's like it also comes with a price that you have to figure out later on, and that becomes clear over the course of the movie. But just like what on earth is happening at the end? Like but honestly, also you like, can renounce your dreams and all or, <laughs> you, know, you can <laughs> renounce your wishes. Yeah. You renounce your wish and everything goes away, and like he can like touch you through the TV through particles. Like what the, And Pedro what? Pascal becomes the stone, like yeah, sure. Like, look, that's not even the part that I was like, kind of like, I, I just kind of shrugged that I was like, I guess that's, <laughs> I guess that's happened. Whatever. That seems like, like it end. would be against the rules, but sure. But like, it's the end. It's just like I don't understand what's going on. And like, people were like rage standing this movie about like people complaining about the dream. So I'm being like, oh yeah, because it's so weird that like stones that like grant wishes. I mean, can't wait till the next thing where they get like like a a gauntlet that held six stones and it grants all your wishes. I'm like, well, the difference is the MCU actually did it well. <laughs> that's that's the main difference here. Um, because I don't have any problem with the conceit. I just it just doesn't make like nothing in the film makes any sense. Like honestly, honestly, I just have no idea what's going on in the final act of the movie. Yeah, and with Kristen Wiig's character, the whole um, like her her uh, that central idea of oh, I'm I'm wishing to be Wonder Woman, right? Like I I want to be Diana because and I don't I didn't understand why she wanted to be Diana. I guess because she's attractive, Diana. like. Well, no, because she's like, well, so she wishes for that, like after she like defends her from, you know, the guy who was harassing her on the street. Yeah. And the notion is that she wants to be like strong and independent and like a badass woman is like the way that I read it. Yeah. Well, so why are you wishing to be someone who spent 70 years and still isn't over the old boyfriend? But anyway, she doesn't, uh, she doesn't but that idea, sure. that idea, I, I know that was, but um, the idea that I want to wish to become the hero or whatever and i end up becoming the villain in the process well that has been done before too right like that is the freaking riddler from batman to some extent and um doesn't electro have like a similar type thing in spider-man i think but um maybe i just imagine that but anyway that that doesn't feel like anything new and kristen wig is just doing an snl kristen wig character I, it all feels so childish at times when she's like oh i want to be just like her she's smart and sexy i mean like it's like we're in high school again or something like i want to be like yeah. popular girls. look it's not a good I, character yeah it's not it's not a good character <laughs> period definitely the, like look, i i think kristen wig is like I, I don't have as much problems with her like performance but like the character isn't good anyway uh i want to wrap up now no, i'm kidding uh, we can give a little bit more love than that, or, or at least attention than that. I shouldn't say love necessarily, because I don't think we're going to go that direction. But look, I, like, let's talk about some of the performances. I just kind of grouped them in two buckets. Like I said, there's four characters. So why don't we just talk about Gal Gadot and Chris Pine? Uh, the, obviously, you've... I mean, this was like so out of the bag just from the trailers, but you know, he, Chris Pine does come back through this wish that, that Diana has made to the Dreamstone. And uh, the condition is not that he is back, but his soul... I guess uh, no pun intended for the review we're doing later on in the podcast. Um, the, her, but his soul has like, or mind or whatever, has, his spirit has entered the body of this person. So it's not him that's back. It is his soul or, or whatever. And, and Diana sees that no one else sees that, but Diana sees that. And so that's, it's weird. I don't get it. I don't get it, but it's really weird. Yeah. It's really weird when you start really thinking about it. And the fact that they like, have sex or whatever, but like, who is she having sex with? Is she really having sex with Steve or is she having sex with the body of this other guy well, who yeah. has so the no body of the other guy whatsoever? Guy, but the mind of in, 
how his body is being used, right? Like it, it's a little problematic if you really start thinking about it too much. Yeah. But yeah, it's it, it's such a weird concept. To, yeah, like, like she's the only one who sees Steve. Um, and then they try to do like a little meet cute at the end with her and the guy whose body it was, which was like, what? Like what? what? I thought it was kind of funny. No. Um, as far as her performance, I don't know if this is where you were going, but I think sure. uh, the script does no one any favors in this movie. I think the script is quite bad at times, and I think Gal Gadot comes off as like a like a slogany politician at times with like some of her like what one-liners about you know peace and um, she has those I, in the first film too, but it's just it's so much more jarring in this one. Yeah, I, I I don't know. It it felt really weird and um not and not the good type of cheesy that I wanted from this movie. Let me put it that way. Um, just because I feel like there was so much inconsistency with the tone. I want I wanted like that campiness again throughout the whole movie, um, and didn't feel like that it really delivered on that. Um, and so I don't know if I can really like accurately judge his. Her performance, I mean, Chris Pine, he's a charming guy. But again, I think the jokes are, and I mean, look, I get, yeah, sure. The um, recurring jokes are used in everything, but the jokes weren't funny the first time. I don't find them funny this time either. Um, and so I just feel like, yeah, I understand what you're saying about we're, we're flip-flopping it. But again, I feel like that sounds better in theory than in execution because we're going back to the same higher jokes but um anyway I, I felt like he's you know his charisma takes him as far as it can take take him in this movie but uh again the script isn't doing anyone any favors gal gadot included I, I still think she's a good choice for wonder woman i think there's a lot she can do with this character going forward i just want them to let her do it yeah you know i i rewatched the the first the first wonder woman the, the night before seeing this one and, and one of the things that I was really picking up on it and I don't know if it's a I, I'm not familiar with the comics at all. So I, I don't know if this is like a also like a function of the comics, but like one thing that I really don't like very much about this Wonder Woman character, and I think it's I think it's exaggerated in this one, is what you're talking about with, with this, and it's directly related to the script, I think. And it is this whole very like preachy one-liners, like like I didn't even like it's like cringy one-liners of, of like more like morality based, like dogma i don't even know how you want to like pronounce like really describe it but it's just like it comes off just like super wooden for some reason and i don't understand why it's important for her to deliver like i kind of got it in the first one because it's like fish out of, it, it kind of goes along with the sort of like fish out of water character that doesn't understand like social norms and things like that but but, now, but they're supposed to like be understood to be inspirational in this movie. right right and it's not that it doesn't come off that way at all in the second one um, like it doesn't even I can't even like rationalize it in my brain in the second one like that. And it just really doesn't work at, like at all. And, and I think that I as much as I think that the the character arc of the relationship with Steve Trevor and, and moving on from that, even if it is an absurdly, you know, an absurd amount of time between the first and the second one and having to live with that the entire time, even though that that is I hear what you're saying there for sure, even though I, and I think that arc works for me like it feels like. Like it's a Wonder Woman sequel to your point. Exactly. Like there should be more like, sure. Like take this piece of the puzzle and work through these sort of like emotional relationship driven issues that she has that she needs to work through. But like, there should be more to the character than that. 
um, speaking to you, that you're, you're, what you were saying at the beginning around like everything is about this this relationship, it seems like, right? Like, yes, she has these interactions with Barbara. She has these interactions with with Max Lord. But like the like that her narrative and her arc have nothing to do with those characters. And it's disappointing that there isn't more there. And so when you're talking about the whole notion that the the script lets you know her down it lets chris pine down it lets i i just totally agree with that i just think that even though that small element of her story works for me more more so than it does for you it doesn't feel enough to justify a second wonder woman movie right like it feels like should have been some like short film that she has this relationship with chris pine and it's like completely unrelated to everything else that's going on um and, it's, and that's really disappointing right because it's not like you know, and you switch gears to Chris Pine, like, I think, look, the the best, like, the, the, the part of the movie that works the best for me from, from, like, an interpersonal side of things is, like, the chemistry that Gadot and Pine have. Like, even if you don't like the relationship, I think that that they, they work really well together on screen, and I guess that's what they were trying to recapture, uh, you know, bring that back from the first movie, even though I think it probably was a mistake to not go a different direction. Um, but, that like, that works, and it's a shame that, you can't we can't get more out of that than just the gags right like even if that i did find some of them funny again it just feels like there should be more there's just nothing there for this movie there's just nothing behind the scenery in this one there's just nothing underneath the surface underneath the surface and that's really disappointing because we've seen superhero like this is not a problem with superhero movies it's like, this is a problem with this movie like there's there have been superhero movies for a decade now that have been able to get things deeper beneath the surface than like the visuals and like the action sequences and i just don't know why you know, even if the first like the first one was able to do more with it than this i just don't know why this film was unable to do that with the creative talent that, like the same creative talent from the first movie i mean it's like it's patty jenkins writing this the script with like jeff johns over there right like i just don't understand why they can't do something more with this and I, I don't know why this they thought this would like work don't you think it feel like on the jeff johns point there don't you think it feels a little tv at times like well jeff johns doesn't have anything to do with tv though yeah, that's Greg Berlanti. Flash? No, that's Greg Berlanti. Okay, I thought. I mean, he's a, he's an EP on everything because he's like he's like the head okay. of content. Right. Right. But, but it it does feel like that at time. Like the special effects. And some people have said the special effects aren't that great. They I don't think that they necessarily are. They are, but again, are they talking about the cat for the cat for on on Kristen well, Wiig? Like we don't need to go back to that conversation from last year. But um, I, I again, that's something that I don't mind as much because sure. I kind of like, like, again, I watched the old Spider-Man movies, like the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. And like those movies, the special effects have not aged well, but it perfectly fits the tone of the movie, right? Like it, it, it absolutely, I think, amplifies the comic booky tone of the movie. And they could have done, they could have done the same thing here if mm -hmm. they had actually captured the right tone. Uh, and, uh, but without the right tone, then the, the effects just come off as looking cheap. Also, unrelated point, but they needed more 80s songs in this movie. Like we just have a, a Hans Zimmer score instead of um, like mm -hmm. a soundtrack. And like that, that was the best part of that first trailer was that remix of blue Monday that they used in the first trailer. Like that, that actually got me excited to watch the movie when I saw that, that trailer and heard that song. Um, but instead we get Hans Zimmer and that freaking uh, song from sunshine, uh, the adagio or whatever from sunshine repeated for the 87,000th movie. Um, and so just another area of the movie where they were lacking creativity in my opinion. Yeah. Look, you know, one of the things that, I mean, 
the one I think I've been pretty. I can't remember if it's on the podcast or not because we haven't talked about that many DC movies on the podcast, to be honest, or DCEU movies. But like the Wonder Woman theme is like one of the best superhero themes out there. You know, as much crap as I give the DCEU, like mm-hmm. the Wonder Woman theme is great. And so, like, I understand wanting to use like Hans Zimmer for that because you know he and Junkie XL think that they did all the all the music for like the early all the all the themes for the early uh, DCEU movies. And so, like, wanting to use that is great. But like, you're right, like. If you're gonna make a movie that's set in the '80s, and you, like why aren't you? Why aren't why aren't you spending? I don't know. This this one's budget is two hundred million dollars. Like why, why aren't you spending more money on like licensing? Songs if we're gonna be in a, if we're gonna be in a mall in, at the start of this movie, I need to hear like Kids in America or We Got the Beat or freaking Rock Lobster like, or something. What did Valley Girl pay? I mean, for goodness sake, like, yeah. they, were, like they didn't have that big of a budget. You could even use the versions off of the Valley Girl soundtrack. I don't care. I just want to hear some 80s songs. Yeah, also just a self-correction here. Uh, I was wrong. Patty Jenkins and Jeff Johns and Dave Callahan wrote the screenplay for this. Uh, Alan Heinberg wrote the screenplay for the first one. So maybe they're, they're not the exact same creative talent. So maybe Patty mm-hmm. Jenkins just like, I don't know, shouldn't write a movie. Jeff John. I mean, Jeff Johns, I think, is like at this point, like getting hands on. Like, I don't know. I, just All well, we hear is bad stuff about Jeff Johns at this point. So I don't know if you, know, he, you want him writing your movie or not. And look, people have pointed this out as well. The We've now found the Madden curse of the uh, film world, which is that as soon as you get tapped to do some sort of Star Wars project, your next project is going to tank. Because it's yeah. happened to Colin Trevorrow. Uh, Colin Trevorrow. It happened to Josh Trank. And it happened to Benny Weiss too, if you want to think about the last season of, uh, of Game of Thrones. Um, We're not even doing Star Wars stuff anymore, right? Now, No, they're not. Neither, I mean, you know. Neither, <laughs> neither is Trevorrow. Or Trevorrow, yeah. But, yeah, you know, and, and somebody made this point as well that uh, isn't it funny? You think about all that and then you think about the fact that the person who they kicked to the curb, Ryan Johnson, went out and made like a hundred, however, however much Knives Out made, like made his own original movie that like absolutely crushed at the box office. Um, yeah, I mean, he's and, also, uh, but he's also like a, a auteur writer director. So it's a, it's a little different, but you don't consider Josh Trank an auteur. What's wrong with you? Hey, I, I don't think I've ever seen a movie by Josh Trank, so I, I can't, I can't pass judgment on that. But from what I hear, I don't think so. Yeah, you may be right on that. But anyway, just an interesting point, right? That now she's yeah. now Patty Jenkins is going to be doing Star Wars, and I don't know that 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 people Maybe not would for be as excited for it as they were when it was originally announced a couple of weeks ago. Although this movie does have its defenders, as you have brought up, but I think it's just people who like the idea of this movie and like the character and yeah, like comic book movies. And so because there are so many people out there who were saying, Oh, this is really bad. They just mm-hmm. feel like they have to go so hard in the other direction. And you're like, no, this movie's amazing, which it's not like objectively it is not. Yeah. I mean, look, I think we're also in the, uh, the truth is like, we're also in the minority because this has, you know, this is fresh on rotten tomatoes and has like a, I don't know, a, like 70. we are, but we are. Well, it like, has like a 78 or 80% audience score. We're, we're in the minority. I guess. Maybe it's just the circles that I look at or whatever, but it certainly doesn't feel like I'm in the minority. It feels like most of the people I've seen have strongly disliked this. But yeah, I guess. It seems like, it seems like most people are saying this is like a three out of five movie. The people who want to keep getting invites to, you know, big comic book movie premieres in the future are going to say what they're going to say, I guess. But that's not sure. my business. <laughs> 
Well, Scott, we got sidetracked in the middle of talking about the people. So let me go back and talk about the villains. Uh, We're entertained and talking about the movie, but yeah, maybe. Uh, Kristen Wiig and Pedro Pascal are the two villains in this film. We talked a little bit about them already. Kristen Wiig plays Barbara Minerva, or you know, towards the end of the movie, known as Cheetah, uh, also from the comic books as well, being known as Cheetah, and then Pedro Pascal's Maxwell Lord, also from the comic books, but just Max Lord from the comics. No alter ego name, I don't think, but. Look, you talked about how Pedro Pascal was the level of zaniness or or silliness that you were kind of looking for from the movie, and Cheeto was less than that. So why don't you tell us a little bit more? I mean, yeah, I don't know that I really have anything to add about Kristen Wiig uh, other than just, you know, to say again that I thought this was just Kristen Wiig doing her, you know, SNL character or whatever, and it wasn't that, wasn't one of the funnier ones, and I just found it all a little silly in a bad way again uh her whole like i want to be like diana very like high schoolish but um yeah pedro pascal is good um definitely a different performance than we are used to seeing from him on the mandalorian again i think the script lets him down because while his character while he makes the most of it i think that crucial things about this character like his relationship with his son right like did not even register at all for me. And like they, it's clear at the end of the movie, you know, nonsensical as it may be, that they want you to like have some sort of investment in this relationship between Pedro Pascal, between Maxwell Lord and his son. And I just, I didn't believe it. Nothing. Yeah. There was, there was no chemistry between him and his son. Well, his um, son is like a wet blanket, but I mean, that's not his fault. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, this—it's the script. I think is is one of the is the major issue here uh, because I thought his performance was fine. Actually, one of my favorite moments in the movie. Maybe this is skipping ahead, but uh, this is ahead. this is I think a good encapsulation of what I wanted this movie to be. Is there's a scene where one of his aides or something tells him that oh the FCC has done X Y Z, and he goes oh the FBD the BCB like and just starts spouting off like nonsensical acronyms as like to, as like a flat back at the FCC. I thought that was like hilarious. That like that sounded like it was right out of a 90s like uh one of like the really over the top 90s action movies or something that I really enjoy. So that's what I wanted uh and there wasn't enough. Yeah, I like Pedro Pascal. Uh, I mean like, I think performance wise he was probably my favorite in the movie. Um I just really like him in general. I really want to watch Narcos. It's been on my backlog forever. I'll probably never watch it, but I want to watch it. And this is the reason why like I think he just adds a lot of character, right? Like he's Look, a lot of times when we talk about people who are in completely different movies, it's usually a bad thing. But like in this one, it feels like it actually might have been a good thing. Um, but yeah, like he's he's Max Lord, like he's out of his mind. He's like I say, I mean, he's like a megalomaniac, sort of like typical larger. I, I don't even know how to describe it, like supervillain, right? Like he he isn't quite there. He's like an unsuccessful supervillain ultimately, right? Because he's like this like failed businessman basically at the beginning of the movie, and he just like steals the stone and does something stupid and becomes the stone. Um, and like his attentions are complex. He's not like a super three dimensional character that you know, you're going to remember as one of the most interesting or, or best performed villains of all time, but his performance works for the film Edge, again, but like what, there's not much there to do, right? Like that, like what is there to learn about this character, except that like he wants more as he tells you over and over and over again in the movie, uh, like this, yeah, he wants I the oil from the from the Middle East or whatever. And there's like a kind of a well, strange he started scene. That. Yeah, well, he, he there's kind of a strange scene with him and this Middle Eastern guy that feels a little stereotypey the way that the the Middle Eastern guy is portrayed. But 
Yeah, uh, we there. There was some interesting commentary around that that I was reading actually that um, we don't need to get into because it's more political than it needs to be. But I, it, they were actually not saying like it, as much as that character may have been stereotyped. There was some interesting political subtext uh, to that character that we don't need. It, like I don't think it was explored enough to say. Was well, it not to be really found elsewhere. Was well, not to be exactly. found elsewhere exactly. in the movie yeah. as when the president of the United States just like randomly. Like, I, I totally out of context with the conversation, just decides to mention that, oh, hey, we've bombed other countries for a lot less than this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, all of a sudden, he just has a crisis of conscience for no reason, just so we can get that little... A lot of people have made the joke that, like, this feels like it was written by Gal Gadot because she also, she was, like, the one who engineered that whole, like, Imagine video. Like, early in quarantine, there was that video of, like, a bunch of celebrities, like, singing or lip-syncing or whatever to John Lennon's Imagine. And it just got clowned so heavily online as just, like, this empty, hollow gesture, which it kind of is. I mean, it's 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 kind of silly. And that just felt like where the a lot of the politics of the movie, the level that they were on, was, like, the Imagine video that Gal Gadot did. Never saw that video, but I believe it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I completely lost my train of thought where I was going with it, but sorry, no, I, I doesn't matter. I think I think my point was done. Um, <laughs> but I I like I liked Pedro Pascal. I don't think oh the more thing the whole like it, I was gonna say I joked about this in my letterbox review, but like look this movie is not kidding you when it says like all it wants is more because this this movie just kept giving you more and more and more and more and more of everything like like literally everything it gave you more than you needed of it except um, Wonder Woman. Well, sure, yeah, that's true. Uh, but honestly, if that was going to be the way they were going to write Wonder Woman, maybe we're better off not getting more. But look, I, I think overall, Pedro Pascal is good. Kristen Wiig, I, can't, I don't understand why this character is needed. I, don't, I really don't get it. I think that nothing against Chris, like, honestly, nothing against Kristen Wiig. You are less of a fan, it seems like, than I am. But I just don't know what the point of the character was. Like, you could have had the whole movie. It would have been, honestly, they probably wouldn't have been that less. Like, I'm just going to say it. She should have been in love with Diana. I mean, look, that it would have been, been more interesting. It would have been more interesting for sure. Um, it would have been really confusing, but uh, around like how the arcs work out, but it would have been more interesting, definitely. And like, like in also in terms of like arcs, like I kind of get it, right? Like this whole like notion of like drunk on power, like finally having this thing that you want and it makes you feel powerful and doesn't make you feel like you're like you're the object of all these people who are manipulating you throughout the world. But it just like, go, it, again, it just it, it gets taken to such a point where it just feels like kind of ridiculous but like not in that like over the top way that you're looking for um in the film it just gets ridiculous at some point is there not some sort of like logical issues as well with the fact that like she wishes to become diana so she becomes diana well then they're fighting how can either of them win right because aren't they just like the same person like aren't they just shouldn't they like you're thinking about the exact hard. same things knowing that I, well I no mean, because then I she wants to I become guess. more she wants to become an apex predator so. that's true that's true yeah that's when she becomes the cat. Yeah. And if it's one thing that Wonder Woman can handle as an apex predator. Before that, though, she was screwed. Not enough Jason Derulo in this movie. <laughs> oh, man. You want to go there? You want to go back to Cats references? No, <laughs> no, I don't. All right. Um, look, I think that we've... What I have left on my list is to talk about the plot and the action sequences. And specifically the plot, you know, the romance arc if not already covered, is what I wrote in my notes. I think we covered it. I don't think we need to talk anymore. I mean, do you want to talk more about Chris Pine and, and Gal Gadot? No, okay. Uh, the other one is the villain arcs. I think we kind of covered that already. And then the last thing is the action sequences, right? Like we talked about uh, a little bit about how the sort of middle third is missing any semblance of like interesting action 
whatsoever. And I think that's true. But for me, again, like that, that opening 20 minutes, like the Olympic Games type thing on Temescara or Themyscira, like that was great. I loved that. I would have loved watching like like that. That feels plucked straight out of like a Wonder Woman TV, like a Disney Plus. I know this is I know this is Wonder Woman, but like a Disney Plus like TV show. This feels like an episode that could have been like an, like in the context. It could have been an episode in The Mandalorian. Like it was so cool. It's like it's so well done. It Very feels interesting. Great out of Ben Hur is what it feels like. Well, sure, yeah. I just meant like this could have been like a flashback episode in a Wonder mm -hmm. Woman TV show on HBO Max. Like would have been great. But then like you put it in the context of this like 150 minute movie where like it has nothing to do at all with what's going on in the film. It just makes you like shake your head a little bit. And then, you know, fast forward the next, yeah, you had the mall sequence after that, but then the next action scene after that is like, it's basically, what is it? Like, I guess it's Egypt. Like they're in Egypt and they're like, like on the highway or whatever. Like that's like the next action sequence. And that's like, yeah, that's like 45 minutes left in the movie. <laughs> like there's hardly any time left in the movie. Yeah. Catching the bullet was kind of cool, but which one is that? that? That's when they're in the White House. Um, yeah, she, like she, the bullet. Oh, like, with the whip. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was cool. But I mean, she does a few cool things with the whip or whatever. But yeah, they certainly use the whip more in this movie. Nothing really eye catching, particularly eye catching about these. Um, Wait, actually, you didn't like the, the mid air fight at the end, like when she was like they were like hanging on the whip, but also fighting each other at the same time cheetah and wonder woman yeah that, that was that was fine that was fine um yeah. but like i said the mall setting was a fun setting for a action sequence they just and they dropped the ball in that scene yeah anything else you want to talk about uh can we talk about the uh mid-credit scene for a second so oh yes let's talk about the mid-credit what is the name of this character that she's going to be playing a yeah, I mean, I don't know anything about this character or what they intend to do with this, but it just like it's it just made me laugh. Like, first the freaking Luke Skywalker thing happens on the Mandalorian. Now we get this. Like, can can we never move on from the old gods, right? Like, why why must we keep going back to the well um, so many times? And like, cool if if you want to have Linda Carter show up in a um post-credit scene or do like a Stan Lee cameo or something in a movie. Sure. That's great. Fine. But like to now apparently be setting us on a course for where she's going to be some sort of character and some sort of media content going forward. I'm over it. Do we know that? I mean, that's what it seems like. What else is the point of this? If not for that? I mean, it could be, I mean, it could just be a fun cameo. Look, she's probably going to be a main character in the third movie, but, um, yeah, could just be a fun cameo. Seems unlikely. I mean, I hope that's what it is. Um, Look, we'll do a re-review in, in three years when the movie comes out, and we'll say if you do, you, do you like Wonder Woman 1984 more after you found out it was just a cameo? I think I'm going to be able to go ahead and answer that. But <laughs> yeah, that feels about right. Yeah, look, I mean, like that was cool. It didn't did nothing for me because I I'd never seen the Wonder Woman TV show from the 70s, um, but like cool i guess like this this is gonna sound a bit glib but like does anyone care about that television show yeah i mean that i think that the, it probably has his fans out there i mean older folks for sure yeah i mean look it was like i know that a lot of this film was like supposed to be an homage to like older dc film like everyone's talking about this movie being like an homage to like richard donner's superman movie which 
I wish I could tell one way or the other because I I don't know. I don't have the ability to make that reference. I just know people were saying that. Yeah, I mean, I've seen Superman, but um, it's been a few years and I don't have enough familiarity with it to make that comparison. But I mean, I liked Superman. I didn't really like this. So make of that what you will. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, Scott, I think we yeah, know oh, your favorite story. I do, but... sorry, I, I, I do want to say one more thing really quickly. Yes, um, go ahead. There's been so many takes about this movie about like, um, oh, this is uh, people are just now finding out the superhero movies have been this bad for a long time. Number one, that is complete crap. There have been really good superhero movies. Um, and this is not indicative of some larger trend within the superhero genre. And number two, um, people are like talking about, well, this is proof that streaming and putting these movies straight on HBO changes the game. Um, because this I bet not, people, yeah. would have, people would have liked this more if they saw it in theaters. This is just a regular old bad movie. It is not deserving of these expansive takes about the future of the movie industry or superhero movies or whatever. It is just a bad movie. And um, I am sick of seeing these like people trying to read more into uh, the negative reactions to this movie um, than uh, than is warranted, in my opinion. That's all. Yeah, like, I, I I spare myself from the corners of film Twitter that you're on to avoid seeing crap like this. But look, like this this is just a bad movie. <laughs> this film was not. This film was going to release like six months ago in theaters and still released two days ago in theaters and they're green lighting wonder woman three because of its strong performance in theaters not on hbo max um because it performed well overseas it, it's made like 75 million dollars yeah in international markets plus whatever it made domestically so like look is that is that what they're expecting from like a regular non-covid world like of course not but that's like way above what they're i mean wait it was way above what tenet did on opening weekend in international markets and and that's why it's being greenlit not because you know hbo max viewership was up yeah, I don't know, like 200% or whatever it probably was on Christmas Day. Like, that's just, it, it's such a silly notion. Like, it's just a bad movie. Like, people people put bad movies in there all the time. Like, like look, honestly, there have been more good superhero movies in the last two years than there have been bad superhero movies in the major franchises, at least. And that's just the truth of it. Um, and look, like, the, the movies were much, the superhero movies were much worse eight, like, on average, seven, eight years ago than they are now. Um, and I just think that people are salty that, like, I don't know. People don't like Oscar baby dramas more than super like more people just don't go see them, which I understand that. But like, this is a silly way to like dissect the problem. And I do. I mean, I, I absolutely enjoy Oscar baby movies more than sure. superhero, but, but I understand that superhero movie. There are also a lot of very good superhero movies out there and that they have their value and should be appreciated as cinema all the same. Exactly. Yeah. Look, I mean, I don't, Honestly, and here's another thing too that like I just don't like as much as I like don't like this movie, and there's there's plenty of other movies that I don't like. Like I'm not gonna begrudge people who do like the movie. Like I think they're wrong in their like critical opinion of the movie, but like most of those people aren't trying to like offer me their critical opinion of the film. And I'm like glad that they enjoyed it. Right. Like just like I didn't like I'm thinking of anything so this year. I don't get it. I don't understand the point of it. But, like I'm glad you enjoyed it. And I'm glad there are people out there who enjoy the film. So I don't know like why people have to like go out and like crap on on people enjoying movies. I, I've seen a little bit of that too. And I just, I don't, I don't get it. And, and vice versa. Like if yeah. you really enjoy the movie, like shaming someone for not liking no need it, to yeah. be yeah, super aggro about people who didn't like it. Well, Scott, that's cool and all, but you just don't get it. 
I guess so. I guess that's yeah. that's what it boils down to. We just didn't get this movie. Yeah. All right, Scott, uh, favorite scene. I was trying to think of something that I hadn't said. Uh, but yeah, I can't really think of anything. I thought the, you know, the bullet catching was cool. And the uh, the line that I mentioned from Pedro Pascal reminded me of like the Sayonara line from Con Air or something. Again, I wanted more of uh, more of that from this movie. But yeah, we got what like we got. The, yeah, and I like the opening scene on the mascara. I thought that there was going to be more of the mascara in this movie because somehow like Robin Wright and Connie Nielsen are like the freaking third and like fifth bill in this movie. I don't understand how uh, they're in it for like five minutes. Mm-hmm. Most of that scene is just her off in the countryside like doing the different tri- like trials and stuff but i really enjoyed that i thought it was a great scene pretty sad that the best my favorite scene in a wonder woman movie doesn't involve any major character but look at that was kind of the movie that it was and i really enjoyed what i got from that particular scene and wished i could have gotten more of that sort of flavor in the film overall and i wanted to like this movie but i i didn't so let's put a score on it out of 10 what are you giving wonder woman 1984 uh, very glad that I did not waste my time going to see this in theaters. Uh, 3.5. Yeah, that I'm, I'm almost surprised you went that high, but look, 3.5 is not a good score. Uh, 4.2 for me, 4.2. I look forward to a better third outing since apparently we're getting that. All right. That should just about do it for our discussion of Wonder Woman 1984. Let's take a short break. And when we return, we'll be back with our second review listeners. And if you're feeling disheartened by our talk so far, I think we're going to like this one a little bit more. And that is Pixar's latest outing, Soul. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. As I mentioned before the break, the second of today's double feature will be a review of the animated comedy drama Soul, directed by Pete Docter from Inside Out, Up, Monsters, Inc., and co-directed by Kemp Powers, screenwriter for One Night in Miami later this year. Soul features the voices of Jamie Foxx as Joe Gardner, a passionate jazz pianist who is waiting for his breakthrough on the jazz scene while teaching middle school music on the side. One day... Joe gets an impromptu call from one of his former students, Curly, played by Questlove, who is the drummer in Dorothea Williams' legendary jazz quartet. What's the news? That the quartet recently lost their pianist and that Joe has the opportunity to fill that hole. Joe happily obliges, aces the tryout without the rest of, with the rest of the band, and giddily leaves the jazz club with the news that he finally might have his breakthrough. It might be fair to say, though, that Joe was a little too over the moon about his good fortune because as he heads home from the trout, he's not paying close enough attention to where he's going and falls into a manhole. Just like that, Joe finds himself in his soul form on his way to the great beyond. Unwilling to accept his fate, Joe attempts to escape the conveyor to the great beyond and ends up instead in the great before, where he becomes the mentor to Soul 22, played by Tina Fey, a cynical soul who has been in the great before for millennia, unable to find the spark that will complete her badge that acts as a pass to be sent to Earth. If Joe is able to help 22 find that spark, 22 will give Joe the pass back to Earth to let him continue living his life. All the while, the great beyond's soul counter, Terry, played by Rachel House, is hot on the trail of Joe, who she recognizes has escaped from being sent to the great beyond, making Joe's quest to return to Earth 
a race against time. Scott, did Soul captivate you the way that all the best Pixar films do? Or was Soul missing that special something from the Pixar formula? Yeah, I mean, look, this is like the Pixar formula, I guess, to some extent. Like, I don't know that I've never, that I had ever quite understood that phrase. Like, I'm sure there probably is a formula if you want to boil it down to its elements. But the Pixar formula that I see is, we're going to make some really, really good animated movies um, <laughs> that you want to rewatch and that make hit you in the feels towards the end. Yeah, it's like, step one, Pixar make formula. a movie, and step two, profit. That's yeah. the Pixar formula. In that regard, this movie hits the Pixar formula because it is very good um, and has the emotional resonance of the best Pixar films, in my opinion, and yeah. goes to some strange places. Like this is a odd metaphysical at times, uh, philosophical movie. I like, you know, I'm, I'll just echo the point that many have brought up that this is this movie's for adults. Like, let's let's be perfectly frank about that. The only area where I see this movie really being targeted at kids is the humor. Um, I think that the humor is like the hey, this is for the, here's the part for kids, adults. The rest is for you. Um, and I, but I mean, I do hope that kids watch this movie, and I hope that they are able to follow the themes that are going on because I like that Pixar is getting darker with some of the, the ideas that they're presenting to kids, like. You know, we had Onward this year, right, which was about brothers who are dealing with the death of their father. And it's, you know, a lot of it is about sort of moving on from the death of a loved one. And this movie, um, you know, involves characters who have, I mean, like Joe, he's he dies, basically. Like when he falls into this hole, he's dead. And that's why he's going to the great beyond, ends up in the great before or whatever. And has to reconcile with some very complicated things about his life and his dreams and his purpose in the world, um, which are just not things that you expect to see in an animated movie. Um, and that's why I think Pixar is like the most interesting offshoot that Disney has going right now, just because they're willing to go to strange places that, um, you know, that the, uh, a lot of other Disney properties, well, like when star Wars tried to go to, to some odd places, it was, you know, rejected and, retconned and everything that happened in episode nine. And, um, you know, Marvel doesn't really stray too far from its formula, uh, the the MCU formula in a lot of movies. Um, I just feel like Pixar is really out on its own island and they've done a great job of establishing their name as being the for, for, foremost name in animation um, to where they can get away with doing this because they have the Pixar stamp on, on them. And, you know, Pete Docter, obviously is maybe the most experimental of all the Pixar directors between this film and Inside Out, which was his last one, which also, you know, had a, had a sort of out there concept with the emotions and all that. But anyway, this film, I think, is is very uh, well executed. It's beautiful to look at. I mean, gorgeous animation. I, this I absolutely wish I could have seen this on the big screen. Um, wonderful, jazzy score by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. They're really showing their versatility this year, yeah. like with Mank and... You wouldn't um, recognize this as a as a as a no. You, know, you wouldn't recognize either yeah. of those as being, as being Resident Ross, but um, great, great uh, jazzy soundtrack. Again, the animation is beautiful, which I think complements the themes of the movie about like you know yeah. enjoying everyday beauty. Um, and I lo I love the voice cast. I think that in the end, this movie is is deeply resonant and nuanced and um, looks at 
again, these ideas about like your purpose, your passion in life in and looks at them in a different angle that isn't explored in animated movies or really just in movies in general. I mean, I don't want to say too much, I guess, at this point, but um, I think that the, the message that this film leaves you with is not where I was expecting it to go. And I mean that in the best possible way. So, yeah, I mean, like this, I think absolutely is in the top tier of Pixar films. Um, I'd have to, you know, rewatch everything to know for sure. But, um, you know, in, in the moment, I, I, I was absolutely enchanted by it. Um, again, really touched by the message in the end. And um, I think Pixar has slam dumped 2020 with two wonderful movies. Yeah, look, I'll be honest. I always thought this was going to be my preferred. I love Pete Doctor. He's probably my favorite of the directors at Pixar with Up and, and I mean, Inside Out, especially being my favorite of Pixar's um, whole filmography so far. And so to say the least that I was excited about this one. Um, yes, like I absolutely was and was not disappointed at all. I think that it'll it, only time will tell to see if it if it surpasses inside out for me just because I mean, I've had years for that one to sit with me and I I've had a day <laughs> I've had about 24 hours for soul to sit with me so far. But I loved this movie. I mean, this is one of my favorite movies of the year so far. And in terms of its enjoyment factor, like I just loved watching this movie. Like you said, it's beautiful. I recently got a 65 inch like OLED TV to sort of like, all right, I'm not going back to theaters for a long time at this point. Should have done it like seven months ago, probably. Um, and so it was, I mean, it was absolutely, absolutely gorgeous film. And I'm really, I mean, I was really glad to have the extra inches uh, that I've been able to acquire more recently. And it's gorgeous. The, the the score is amazing. Like the jazz score is awesome. I can totally see myself listening to this just while I'm working or whatever it might be. Jamie Foxx is awesome as Joe. Like he's amazing in this voice role. Like he really is. Um, he and he, and a lot of the movies on him because he is. I mean, he is the lead in this movie, right? It is his performance that it rides on, and he goes through a lot of emotional journeys. And I think the character grows a lot, and you can feel that in. The performance from Jamie Foxx. I think that he does a wonderful job. And I think the whole cast really adds a lot of color um, to, to the film. And again, going back a little bit to like the design of the film, like this whole notion of the great beyond and the great before and what souls look like. I, think, I mean, it's just really, it's just really great. Like, honestly, it's just like really well thought through just like everything in Pixar is. And I, like, it was just such a pleasure. It was just like such a joy. Like, I, I mean, I watched wonder woman on Christmas day and you know, I had my fun like making fun of the movie while I was watching it with, with my girlfriend. And, but like, then we watched that down and watched this last night and we just like, just had a great, like an actual great time just enjoying the movie, which was so different than what we'd experienced the day before. And it's nice to enjoy movies. It? it is nice to enjoy. Movies. It is preferable to not enjoying them. I'm going to go out on the limb yeah. and say that enjoying movies is better than not. Enjoying them. And you can enjoy bad movies, but uh, look, it's a different kind of enjoyment when, you just kind of revel in in what something like soul is. It's just such an enjoyable film. And then to get to the themes, right? Like you talk about, you know, getting beneath the surface, something that which, which we weren't really didn't really feel like we were able to do in Wonder Woman 1984. Getting below the surface is, you know, equally enriching and gratifying. And I think that's where over time is going to is going to really determine where this falls in the longer term for me and, in, in, you know, the spectrum of Pixar movies. But one of the things that I found really fascinating about this movie is that ultimately like the final like emotional conclusion 
of the film is like really simple. Like it, it like it really is like this really basic, simple concept. And I like that was simultaneously very gratifying and also just like a little bit off putting that like the the final takeaway point is just something so simple. And I'm not like that's like the one I I don't want to say asterisk because it's really not because I love this movie. But like it's the one thing where I want to sit with it a little while longer and see do I still do I feel like it's too simple or that it's a little or it's like almost unsatisfying how simple the like final note that the movie ends on is. But, you know, regardless, I think that even if it's even if it ends up feeling unsatisfying to me, I think that it's it's kind of brilliant at the same time that like this really complexly woven movie you know, between its animation, its themes, its its design, the way it like visually sends messages to you. It's really in some ways it's like really amazing that you can boil it down to the final like like final emotional note. Cause it still was emotional. I just afterwards I was like, wow, that was like really emotional for something that was like really simple. Um because I think a lot of times like one of the things that I love about a lot of the Pixar movies, especially inside out, <laughs> is that there's these really complex themes being explored. And the final notes are often like super complex to those films as well. But overall, Scott, I love this movie. It's one of my favorite movies of the year so far. And I love Pixar and I love Pete Doctor. I keep thinking that like Pixar, man, they're like they're like just the mainstream animation studio. They can't like are they over, like maybe they're overrated? And then like you watch their movies, like no, they're not overrated at all. They're, they're not they're, that they're mainstream. Just the best. They're not that mainstream, though. I guess is kind of the point that I was was trying to well, make. Like, yeah, yeah, yes. Every everybody loves I mean, Toy their Story. Is the most mainstream you can everybody, get. But. Sure, but but Toy Story is like is like the least weird of any of their movies. But like they're they're doing some really out there stuff. I guess is what I'm trying to yeah. say. Like if I had to describe something as um, mainstream animation, I would just think of like the lame, like this, you know, maybe some more. DreamWorks films and stuff. Like targeted sl- solely at kids. Like I think sure. what Pixar is doing under the guise right of being we're mainstream we're pixar we're disney you know you love us you, you love Toy story and the incredibles yeah it's actually like pretty subversive and like i i i guess i hear what you're saying about the the message being simple but like i don't think that this type of message is really portrayed that often again in movies and i think it's important to show this sort of again i'm dancing around it cuz i don't want to go too much into it but yet but um i think it's i think it's important to show um the realization that joe comes to at the end of this movie i think it's important to depict that because i don't see i i see uh like the the majority of movies and content and stuff that touches on these themes i think going in slightly different directions for where this movie goes i guess is what i can say while still being totally vague um but i so i that was i really liked that yeah. Well, why don't we just jump jump into um, some you know some of the finer details and and I first want to talk about sort of like the visuals of this movie and yes the animation of it as well. I mean we both said that it's gorgeous here when we were first you know sharing our thoughts on the movie, but also again like the design of these worlds. I mean like obviously Earth, New York City, beautiful. I mean it's beautifully realized, gorgeously animated. Um, the character designs I think are really great. But then also, also like the imagination that it takes to design something like the Great Beyond and the Great Before, Scott. What what do you think of that? Yeah, I mean the the Great Beyond, the Great Before. I I enjoyed those. Like they reminded me a little bit of like the Cloud Cuckoo Land from the Lego Movie or something like that. But um, still, I think very creative. And I I liked the design of the Jerry's in particular. And yeah, um, the Great oh. Great Before, Great Beyond, wherever. I thought that, that was. Yeah. 
the Jerry's and, and Terry were just, but they were yeah, really and Terry. Like, I don't, I don't even know how to really describe it. Like almost like chalk outlined like uh, figures. That it, it was, it was, it was creative and interesting and you know unique and weird in a way that I um, appreciated. And yeah, I, I mean, I just, I just love the Earth world. Like the new, the New York that they um, render here, just like it, it is so alive. I think, and um, again, I think that perfectly complements the themes of the movie. Like you totally get it uh, when we get yeah. to the the message about you know appreciate what's around you, appreciate what because like I think they capture what it's like to be in this world and alive. And like, again, that's so important to the development of 22 is like that once she actually has to live as a human on earth for the first time, she just starts like appreciating these simple pleasures and simple um, things. And uh, it, I don't know, I guess it just reminded me of like the first time I went to like New York or something and um, you know, just all of the buzz and everything happening around you. And, you know, there's musicians in the subway and there's, pizza you know really great pizza you can just grab on the side of the road or it's just like things you overlook in in life and um i felt like the movie got all of that right and the little the little details of um this new york that it imagined um and you know just some of the other environments like the barber shop and um the jazz hall like the half note which is a real club a real i mean a famous jazz club um and yeah, I, I just thought all of it was some of the best animation I've seen from Pixar ever, if we're being quite honest. Yeah, look, I I haven't. So I watched a lot of like the older Pixar stuff earlier this year. I didn't get to much of the new stuff. And and actually sort of like the mid 2010s Pixar is like the are the Pixar movies I haven't seen. So like basically, I don't know, like Monsters University to like Coco or like the ones that I haven't seen. So those are the ones that might have been already pushing that envelope forward in like animation and visuals. But just from the ones that we've seen more recently, like Toy Story 4, Incredibles 2, Onward, like those are all gorgeous movies. Like they, they are really beautiful, um, beautifully animated movies. But this just feel like even not seeing it on, you know, in an IMAX theater or, you know, just on the big screen in general, forget IMAX. It felt like this was a step forward somehow. Like it felt like this was actively pushing the, the the medium of animation forward and in like i don't see every animated movie that comes out that are going for like that you know the sort of like top edge computer generated um animation style i guess it's not necessarily computer generated but like animation style like sure i saw like some of the more like i don't know what the right way like experimental types like i saw klaus last year i want to see wolf walker soon but those are all like different types of animation that are going for like the same sort of like resolution in quotation marks as you know, Pixar animation usually is going for, but in terms of like in-house competition of the films, like this does feel like a push forward in their animation style. I, I, you know, honestly, one of the things that it reminded me of is what Sony was able to do with, you know, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, which was definitely experimental. Um, it didn't necessarily push it forward in terms of like visual fidelity, but like this whole notion of like blurred edges around, like making it sort of like a comic booky feel when we're talking about in the afterlife with the souls and that are like, it really feels like they're almost learning from what into the spider verse was doing because it has that sort of effect of like blurred edges. It's not like a lower frame rate and trying to develop like sort of similar comic book mentality, but they're really taking this notion of, of like design your animation for like the world that you're in that I think spider verse did really well. And like 
and it utilizes that also. Like, I think that that speaks to what you're saying with like the, the Jerry's and Terry, um, as well as the souls, right? Like what they're, how they're designing those and how they are then animating those in, in you know, into life on the screen. I think it just does a really great job. And, um, in terms of the world design, absolutely like bringing New York to life. Look, you, you just, you want to live in that New York, right? Like you, you watch that, you watch something you're like, wow, I want to live there. I want to, I want to live in that world. And, you know, I don't, I mean, maybe I'm in the minority. Like, I don't feel that way a lot when I watch movies. Like, I don't, it's, it's very rare that I, you know, watch a film and be like, well, I want to live in the world that these people are living in. Um, so it's really special when, when you do feel that way in the movie and speaks to the way I think specific, like, yes, the way they write the story and the way the characters are, are built, but like specifically like how the world is brought to life. I think it's such a huge part of that. And it's like, honestly, it's like near perfect. All right. Voice cast. Uh, we have Jamie Foxx in the lead role, but Tina Fey, as probably the only other like big, like, probably like the main um, sort of like supporting voice in the film. But the cast list goes pretty deep on this. Questlove plays Curly, who's the drummer, former student of Joe. Felicia Rashad plays Joe's mother, Libba Gardner. David Diggs, I don't know why he's so high on the bill list, but he plays like he has like one scene in the barbershop as Paul. Angela Bassett plays Dorothea Williams. Graham Norton plays this Graham like Norton. Hi- yeah, yeah. hippie, hippie name, Moonwind. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Put some respect on the name. Uh, plays Moonwind, who's like <laughs> a sign twirler who has this like very spiritual connection with the great before and um, the zone, as it's called, I believe. Um, Rachel House, as I mentioned before, plays Terry. Yeah, Richard Ayote, Alice Braga, West Study or Studi, and Fortune Feimster all play uh, in different versions of Jerry's. Um, and then June Squibb has a brief scene, although I don't, I don't know what her character was, but I saw her name on the cast list and that was funny. Um, but yeah, it's got like the cast goes pretty deep here. Jamie Foxx feels like the place to start. And for me, he knocked it out of the park. What did you think? Yeah, I love Jamie Foxx. He's becoming one of my favorite actors. I think he just, uh, you know, give he brings so much. I'm going to copy what I said in my letterbox review and the, use the pun again, but he brings so much soul to every performance that um, he uh, he gives. And this is this is so clearly not a phoned in uh, voice performance that you can get sometimes from a big actor like Jamie Foxx showing up in an animated movie. This is uh, it. You know, it is clear that he really understands this character and um you know, when he talks about music, there's the right level of like wonder and passion and everything that like you get that that's what's so important to this character. Um, yeah. But when he also for talks better, for, about for like, better and for worse, right? Like he, Joe's not yeah. a perfect character. And I think Jamie Foxx like wears that super well, but specifically. Yeah. But yeah. And I mean, he, his, his, um, the way that he sort of lashes out at, 22, I guess, also feels believable when when they when they've swapped bodies and uh, the the frustration, I guess, that builds as he um, is watching this person in his body um, sort of mess everything up that he's worked really hard to um, to obtain and, you know, sort of trying to get acclimated to this world um, when he needs you know, this person to be at their absolute peak uh, mm-hmm. so that he can, you know, get this gig with Dorothea Williams and uh, get his career to where uh, he has always wanted it to be. Um, and so, yeah, I think he hits all of the notes of the character exactly right. And um, 
just again, I think deepens my appreciation for him as an actor and the types of roles that he can pull off. I, I think um, he's got great charisma that just comes across even in a voice role like this. Yeah, no, I, I just think that all, you know, sort of the arcs that he goes to and I, and I use that plurally because I think that he has like a lot of different character or like relationship arcs that he experiences with 22 with his family, you know, with other people around him. Everything about these arcs is like so believable and so much of that comes down to his voice, you know, his voice performance, I think. And and the incredulous, like, you know, not just in like the passion that he has for the things that he does, but like in his way of life. Right. Like this whole notion of like being incredulous that someone like just wouldn't understand, you know, or wouldn't like have something to uh, enjoy about life. And then, you know, these really touching scenes where, you know, because you get this notion of like, oh, he's not himself right now. Like he's the cat you know, 22 is, is in his body and he gets to witness how other people and how he interacts with other people. And I think that the lessons that he's learning from that and the way that he reacts to those things, both, I mean, also, I mean, one in the animation, but in the voice performance, I think it's just like super believable and he wears it so well. And it's, it, and it's, yes, I think the passion is what grabs you about the performance, but then it's like the nuance that, that I think keeps you there for an hour. And a, I mean, this, this movie has a long credits, so I think it's like only about 90 minutes when you bake, when you take out the credits of it. And it's just like, it, it just, he, he really pulls you from start to finish sort of along with him. If for some reason you're not on board with everything else that's going on in the movie, I just think his performance is spectacular. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. All right. Tina face got it. You know, I, I think this one's been a little bit more mixed. I feel like just from what I've seen around people being like, sure, she's like Tina Fey, but like, why did you need Tina Fey to do this role? Why, you know, like, do we need Tina Fey? Do does it almost take away from the performance to have someone who's like as recognizable as Tina Fey, um, especially when there's maybe not as much to do with that voice performance as there might be with someone like Jamie Foxx? But do you agree with this notion or do you disagree? And you think that Tina Fey was you know really well cast in this? I think Tina Fey was Tina Fey in this. Um, I, I don't really know <laughs> that I have more to say than that. I just felt like this is if you told me that Tina Fey was playing this character, this is the exact vocal performance that I would have expected. I don't think that it was like, you know, blew me away. I don't think that it was bad. I think it was just, it was well suited to the character, right? Like there's even a joke about how, uh, why do you sound like a middle-aged white lady? Uh, I think yeah. he, Jared says at one point uh, to 22. And, you know, they needed someone who sounded like a middle-aged white lady. And I feel like Tina Fey filled the void. And, you know, she does have some nice moments, again, when they've, done the body swap when she's in Joe's body of like uh, sort of wonder again at like these things that she's never actually experienced and her own sort of outlook on life being upended because she had never wanted to go to earth, had no interest in being a human or anything like that. Um, and, but then, you know, it finds that she actually really enjoys it and really enjoys like the simple parts of being a human. And, um, so I think that that arc and, and character development does come across in her um, vocal performance. But again, I just felt like uh, I, I do think she's outshined by by much of the cast because I just felt like this is the exact performance I would have expected, which is not a bad thing. Yeah, no, I I don't I, I think I agree with the notion that you're saying there that I thought it was like she didn't stand out in the way like Jamie Foxx did or other members of the of the supporting cast might have. But she didn't also like I didn't think about like, oh, wow, Tina Fey here can't 
don't know why she's here, which seemed to be some of like the, the, what I heard some people saying or, or read some people saying online. I didn't really get that. Uh, like it, it was good. It wasn't distracting. Um, and again, I think at times it fit really well. Cause I think you need a, you need a strong contrast to what like Jamie Foxx is bringing to the table at 22. Cause like these are not supposed to be like like-minded spirits, right? Like these are supposed to be two people who have entirely different experiences Obviously, I should say I shouldn't say with life, right? Because only Joe is the I mean, only Jamie Foxx's character has had life, right? But like experiences like she's like this character of 22 is is a soul that has that is in many ways like soulless, like it is a soul, but has no passion, no spark to like get them to the world. And and, you know, all Joe's whole shtick is that like he was born to play jazz piano. Um, in in that quartet and that's what he's going to do and then he's going to do whatever it takes to get there and i think that that you know whether tina fey was the right person or the wrong person i don't know but like i think she provides that foil to what jamie fox is bringing and you know complements that in a, in a good enough way to let that performance stand out in the way that it should and so i don't have a problem with it i don't know i, I don't really get why people have a problem with it but look could, well, there's someone out there who might have done better Maybe I don't know. I don't know, but good enough, certainly for me. And I think that, again, it, it complements it well when you have this character who's like so full of life, so full of energy and um, like almost obviously like just from like reading the page, right? Like has so much more life they want to live. I think it just complements it really well. Yeah. Anyone else in the supporting voice cast you want to call out? I mean, Graham Norton and Richard Iowati are people I'm fans of from other things like British TV um other you know, things so I, like britain I'm, yeah i'm always glad to see them pop up and stuff especially uh well i mean both of them like richard iowati to me is one of the funniest people um on the planet when you just you know see him outside the context of this movie that sounds harsh to say but you know he's delivering d- jokes again that are targeted more towards kids i think but um and then graham norton you know he doesn't have a lot of movie roles to his name but um you know he is kind of Britain's answer to Jimmy Fallon or somebody like that, but much funnier than Jimmy Fallon, in my opinion. Um, and so I was glad to see him, you know, get his name uh, noticed by an American audience. And I think he um, does, you know, brings a nice quirky edge to this character of what Moonwind or something like that. Um, I think is, or something like that is the name of his character. But, yeah. Moon, moon. Oh, yeah, those those are the two that I guess I would highlight. Yeah, I thought everybody else, you know, did their jobs. Yeah, I just thought this. I thought the rest, especially like the, so like you have like two branches of the supporting cast, right? Like you have people like Richard Ayade and Graham Norton who are like primarily speaking, they are people who, and like Rachel House, who are the great before, great beyond characters. And I think they bring a particular flavor, right? That like matches really well with that world, right? And then you have like members, the other members of the sporting cast who are like as a part of this like jazz world or part of Joe's life, you know, like David Diggs, like Felicia Rashad, like Questlove. Um, yeah, Questlove know, the, was good too. Right? The list goes on, right? But like, and they, they, when we're talking about like Earth being this like really like New York being this like really like this place you really want to live in that just like is imbued with life, like, yes, that's a big part of like the way it's animated the way Jamie Foxx like sort of lives, lives that character or gives that, you know, give the character of Joe that voice. But like, I think that's also true for like these other characters who are on earth, right? Like quite, whether it's Questlove, whether it's Angela Bassett, whether it's Felicia Rashad, like 
these people are like full of life. Like they're full, like they are these like characters, you know, similar to in some ways to Joe, very different in other ways from Joe as well. But like these characters who share this quality of just like really imbuing this world with like more life and makes it more appealing to like want to like live in these spaces or like be in these spaces with these, with these characters in, in this world. And I just really appreciate sort of like the whole cast, right? Like the whole voice cast for that. And then again, going back to like the sort of the soul world, those, those characters are like, are they're like super zany, like performances, right? Like really, really like off the wall type characters getting there and it, and it works. Like it really, it's really funny. It's just, just genuinely they're good, funny. They're, they're good Pixar supporting characters, right? Like the, yeah, where's John I, Ratzenberger? Yeah, I feel like most Pixar uh, movies have these kinds of zany against supporting characters, like you said. Uh, you know, even thinking about Inside Out, like the other emotions, I yeah. feel like fit the bill there. Definitely. Outside of joy. Yeah, and so I think what's left to talk about really is sort of like the arcs that these different characters go through. And I mean, we talk about different characters. I'm speaking specifically Joe and 22, right? So the first one is, let's, I mean, let's start with Joe thinking about this idea and we'll sort of like rip the spoiler bandaid off. Cause I think this is going to get us into the territory that, you know, we were dancing around earlier, but this, this whole notion of let's just be honest, like he's a really selfish person. Like he's someone who has this like very focused dream for himself and he'll do anything to get there. And that includes putting other people down, acting incredulous when other people talk about how they don't understand necessarily where he's coming from, or, you know, he's willing to do whatever it takes to get these things. And that's, you know, I think this this movie provides a pretty non-judgmental view of that. It lays it sort of like just sort of lays it out on the screen for you to judge for yourself. And at the end, where this character ends up is a very different place where he doesn't really anymore understand or know what he wants to do with his life, how he wants to live it. But he wants to live it to the fullest, like whatever that means, whatever, whatever he makes of that. Ultimately, he wants to live every minute of it. And what I read that to mean is that like kind of going off this notion of of you know, being an inspiration for 22. Like he wants to live his life and like be an inspiration in the way that he lives his life. Right. Scott, I don't know if you read it differently than I do, but that's how I read it. And I just want to talk about that arc, Scott, you can, you know, start where you want to with that, but I want to talk about that first. Yeah. This is the, the part of the movie to me that I was saying that I think is more layered than I was expecting. And yeah. I, I want to copy what my friend Kirk here said about the movie, which I think he put this really well, but he said, most Disney movies are about finding happiness by achieving your dreams. I'm sure there are a few out there about finding happiness despite not achieving your dreams. But this is probably the first one about achieving your dreams and maybe still not finding happiness, which I think that's exactly right. And that is exactly why I think the movie is interesting, because yeah. um, go as we got down towards this ending, right, of uh, Joe and, and this, there's this idea of the spark, right, and the spark being the thing that is your your passion. So so he keeps saying the whole time, right, that music is his passion or music is his spark, whatever music is his spark, music is his spark. Um, and so you get to that point and um, music, uh, you know, you get to the point where he's back in his body, he performs, everything goes great. And the first surprise, I think, right, is that he still doesn't feel right after this, right? Like he has that conversation with Dorothea outside of the, um, the theater. And he's like, I don't know. I just expected to feel differently um, than I feel right now. It just feels like he played any other show, which I was like, oh, okay, that's kind of interesting. But then where I thought the movie was going was, I thought it was going to go then say, oh, well, turns out his spark the whole time was teaching, right? Which is where you think that it's it's going because 
not only do we see him as a music teacher and, you know, his mom wants him to be a teacher, he gets offered the full-time job and he's unsure about it. Uh, but he teaches 22, right, in his own way, how to appreciate the little things in life, it, you know, unintentionally so, but still, he's a good teacher. And so that's why I was like, oh, well, that's the reveal we're going to get now. And no, that's not the reveal we get, right? The, re the reveal is not really a reveal. It's simply that, yeah, music probably was his spark, but his spark isn't necessarily his purpose. His spark isn't necessarily the thing that is going to bring him the most happiness in life. Um, which I think is such an interesting idea and deep idea that we don't see portrayed in movies enough um, that, yeah, you could actually achieve everything you want to achieve. But if your priorities are in the right place, if you're not viewing it in the right perspective, if you don't have the right context, whatever, um, you could still not be a happy person. You could still not be fulfilling your purpose, even if you are doing the thing that you think you are meant to be doing. Um, which, um, is, is an interesting idea to me as somebody who has wanted to be a certain thing for a long time, that being a lawyer. And I'm now in that position and, um, you know, I'm just getting my feet wet, whatever, just still tr starting to kind of experience what life is like in that job. Um, but, um, you know, the idea that, um, you know, I, I, even though I, like I, I felt for a long time, like like Joe, that I was meant to be a lawyer or whatever, that this is the thing that I was meant to do, that I was going to be good at or whatever, that, yeah, I am doing it now. I, there's a chance I might end up being good at it. But even in that situation, even if that is true, even if I become a great lawyer or whatever, like I always hope to be, that doesn't necessarily mean that I am fulfilling my purpose, whatever. The, the idea of your purpose is so much deeper than an activity or a goal or whatever. And so I thought that was a really cool sentiment for this movie to, to express. Yeah, I think that's such an interesting point there, right? Because I, I think that is definitely the part of the film that just goes such a different direction. And, and it was also kind of what I was alluding to earlier on is that like it really, to me, the, this whole notion that your passion isn't necessarily your purpose felt like really like simple it's, it's kind of it's kind of like one of these like you know mystery movies with like a really simple like like into the film almost like a like a whodunit that's just like so obvious and so simple like so obviously simple after you've seen the answer to like the the problem laid out that you're like wow that was like so easy like how didn't i see this before right it feels like that and so that's what, I'll, what i was talking about at the beginning where it's like well th this notion that he isn't happy doing the thing that he's passionate about like doesn't it, he isn't fulfilled not, not that he's not happy but he he isn't fulfilled by the thing that he's doing was this it just seems like such an such an obvious or like very simple simple you know theme right to end on after what feels like this like really inventive very nuanced or complex nuance isn't the right word because the whole thing's nuanced but very complex um you know story arc whatever that we've gone through the whole time that I was a little bit off put by this was the takeaway. And I think the points that you're making sort of at the beginning, what you're talking about, like you don't really see films go this direction ever. Cause I can't think of another movie where like the notion is like the, the key theme of the movie is that like what you're, what you're passionate about is like not fulfilling. Um, you know, I can't think of another movie that is of this type or of this ilk that explores right. that theme. And so this is what I want to see how it affects me over time. Cause Look, like it's already, you know, one of my favorite Pixar movies, just candidly, like it, it's in I again, I haven't seen all all of Pixar's filmography. I think there's I think there's six movies that I haven't seen. 
Um, but this is like up there in the ones that I have seen, like easily top five. And I think that there's how much fun I had watching this movie. If this theme is the one that sits with me and really, I think speaks to me on this deep level that it feels like it's already, you know, affecting you at, I think that this could, you know, go up even further. And so, um, yeah, look, it, it seemed like a really simple sort of finale to the movie, but it ties together like, you know, if I'm, if I'm using that sort of, um, you know, metaphor of the, you know, the mystery, you know, the mystery film or the whodunit that comes together really nicely, even though it seems super obvious, like that's kind of what this film feels like in a way. Like it feels like, oh yeah, like duh, like he's passionate about this thing. But, you know, I think we've all had that, you know, experiences in life where we're really excited about something or really passionate about something. And it just like, doesn't, it doesn't hit on the level that we're hoping it hits at when we finally get to it. You know, even if it's well, not like your life's purpose, right? Like, oh, I'm like super excited for this thing. You know, I've been thinking about it this whole time and like you get it and it's underwhelming. Or, like you don't like you're excited to have it, but like you still feel like you're missing something. Like I, I personally had experiences like that, definitely on a smaller scale than what Joe's talking about here. But look, I, I think it's super fascinating and I cut you off. You're going to say something else. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's it's almost about like and this, I think, gets into like what 22's realization is that mm-hmm. um that like when you put so much emphasis and and like you put focus so much of your energy on achieving this one thing like mm-hmm. in this case being playing with Dorothea Williams whatever becoming part of her band um you just miss everything else you miss a lot of the if, like things that life presents to you to enjoy um yeah his relationship and, you know, with his mother Right. Uh, and, you know, so many other things, piece of pizza or, you yeah. know, the subway the drummer, whatever, all of that. And like that is the simpler part of it to me. Right. The whole like, oh, just appreciate the little things in life, whatever. I mean, you've seen this done a thousand times. I joke to you, Scott, that I can't believe that they actually were not planning on putting this out at Christmas because it feels like their version of it's a wonderful life. Right. Like mm-hmm. even doubt like he goes through the hall of you or whatever, and like looks back at all these events from his past life or whatever. I mean, you know, this is and is really disappointed by them. Um, but yeah, but, uh, but, uh, yeah, I think, but, but so I think that point of like appreciating the little things, whatever, that's nothing new, but I don't know for me personally, number one, I liked it in the context of this story. And number two, I'm just always a sucker for that kind of story because, that's, you know, a lot of my favorite, uh, some of my favorite movies are about it. like even something like boyhood, right? Like that's sort of like the central idea of that movie about like, don't put so much uh, uh, on your like graduation or these big milestones or whatever in life. Uh, because the things that are going to sit with you the most, the things that are actually going to define the person that you become, right? Define your purpose are these little moments that you may not even think at the time seemed that important. Um, And that's what he gets to see vicariously through 22. And, you know, comes to realize at the end of the movie that um, he's again, like you said, he's going to live every moment to the fullest and he's going to appreciate every piece of pizza or, you know, subway musician, whatever uh, good haircut uh, that he can uh, because those can be part of his purpose to, yeah. And you're referencing 22 there because that's the sort of the other arc that I want to talk about. And is this notion and we've already started to touch on it, but like finding your spark, you know, doesn't like for some people, it's that passion that you find in a particular thing or a particular activity or, you know, whatever it might be. The, the range is so broad. But 22, you know, it's not a particular thing. It's 
in many ways, it's it's much simpler than that, right? It's this idea of like 22's passion is just like experiencing things. Um, and I found that really interesting. I want to get your thoughts because I think that, you know, her arc, or I shouldn't say her because it's just a soul. Like the soul, like 22's arc is this idea of like, what does it take to like get, like, what is your spark, right? Like, what is it like? Do you have to feel like you do you like have to find this one thing that gets you excited about living, about like wanting to be exist, like wanting to exist, or can it be just something simpler than that? Like, do you have to fall into these like no, they were getting like super deep here with my like ramp up to this, but like, do you have to fall into these like pres- like prescribed notions of like society of like what it is to like be passionate or or have your spark or find your purpose, you know, again, I don't want to conflate those two things because the movie does a, as a, does a lot to tear those apart, but like, what is it? Like what, it, what is it that, that gets you excited about living and, and 22, I think, it, I mean, she struggled for thousands of years with this notion, right? Scott. So like, what did you think of this arc? Well, yeah, well, that's the thing I think about 22 is that like, ultimately what she achieves is that she transcends the conventional thinking that, Oh, I have to, do a certain thing yeah. and that's my spark, right? I have to try like, one more thing to find what I'm passionate about. Her spark, her thing that she's good at, whatever, is that she is able to see these little moments for what they are as like, you know, defining, possibly defining a person and, you know, yeah. being little things that life sprinkles in there for you to enjoy. Um, whereas most people are like Joe, right? They're just like, looking for there's they're just using those moments as a vehicle to get to what they really think they want which is um you know to achieve whatever this thing is that is their goal in life um and so that is her superpower in a way right is that she is able to appreciate you know she she's the only person in that subway station who stops to like watch the musician and actually like enjoy his music um and again i think that's a really cool idea and not something that you expect to see going into an animated movie that is at least ostensibly for children. Yeah. And one of the things that I really appreciate about 22's like sort of trajectory is like, yes, this notions of like getting, like having these experiences as Joe and enjoying them, enjoying these experiences, but like also the conversations that 22 has, right? Like I'm thinking specifically with the kid who I can't remember the, the child's name. And that's it. That's his band, like Joe's uh, student and band who plays uh, the trombone. But like that conversation is just like really, Connie. I think it's just so eye opening. Sorry, what'd you say? Is it like Connie or something like that? Yeah, that yeah. sounds like that could definitely be right. <laughs> um, yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's right, Connie. And you know, this whole conversation of like basically 22 just like asking connie like oh what are you excited about like oh like are you excited about this well you should like probably do that then like it's just this is so innocent take of like don't complicate life just like if you enjoy it do it and like like live life for what it is and and you don't have to like overthink it or over engineer it or do certain things to make other people happy like if you're excited about it, if you're passionate about it, you want to do it just do it and i found that conversation like super refreshing um and this like really innocent kid like way, which I think both of them are honestly kids in that scene. Yeah, that's a good, I'm glad you mentioned that scene because that one had slipped my mind, but yeah, you're, you're totally right. Yeah. And I think that speaks to 22's overall narrative just to go, I guess, go back to my original question for you and this notion of like, you don't have to find that one thing that gets you excited, right? Like living life can get you there. And I think that we can all benefit myself included Right, we can all benefit from just like appreciating 
the, I mean, I don't want to overuse this, but like appreciating the little things and like, just like not trying to over-engineer your life, especially in COVID, right? Like not trying to like rely on certain things, like sure, like rely on what you need to rely on to get through your days. But like we could all benefit and definitely myself included from just understanding like, look, if this is something that you enjoy doing, just like go do it. Just do it. Like if you can't like, right? Like within reason, I mean, obviously within reason, within bounds, but like you don't have to like not do something or do something because you think they're like, there's like the societal pressure. And that's like really hard to subvert a lot of the time. And um, look, we could all benefit from that. Yeah, I agree. All right. I think the, so. The only thing that I had is, is this. I think we already baked it in, but like this whole notion of like, you know, appreciating the little things in life. And and I think this is like, I thought of this as like separate from either of their arcs, right? Like this whole notion that, you know, both of them sort of have to come to terms with this idea that like not everything is has to be a big thing. Um, but I don't know if there's any much really much more to say about that. You know, that was the part of the the themes that you were talking about, how you thought that was the sort of simpler. We've seen it done a thousand times, you know, and appreciate the small things, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I, I did write this down as something maybe else worth like explicitly talking about if you wanted to add anything else. Yeah, to be honest, I don't know that I, I have much to add. Again, like I said, I think it reminded me of other films like Boyhood being the example that I uh, <laughs> example that I brought up. But, you know, mm -hmm. it's a wonderful life, whatever, just sort of the look at what's around, look at, look at what you already have instead of, you know, thinking about what you want. Um, you know, take time to appreciate what you already have before you focus so heavily on what you want. Uh, again, simple idea in theory, difficult in execution. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. All right. So the last thing for wrap up is where does this fall in the sort of spectrum of Pixar movies? I don't know if you've seen all of them, uh, I, I opened up and said that I hadn't seen about five or six of them, but where does this land for you? Yeah, there's a couple, like there's sequels I haven't seen. Like, I don't think I've seen, I haven't seen any of the car sequels or Monsters University or. Well, I don't think the car uh, sequels are going to break through for you, but I don't know well, about Monsters. Yeah. I never saw Bugs Life, but um, yeah, I mean, Scott, this is probably top seven. I would say um, I'd have to like actually sit down and parse through it to determine if I could say anything stronger than that, if it's higher than that, but you know, sure. it's up there with Top the 30. toy story, the toy stories, the ratatouilles, the monsters, inks, which for me and inside out, which for me are like, those are the, the cream. Yeah. Of the crop. Yeah. I haven't seen monsters university, either the car sequels, finding Dory. I haven't seen Coco. Finding Dory. Coco. Coco, actually, yeah. Yeah, Coco is the one that I think that really could break through for me, I think, and be in that top tier. I don't see the car sequels. I didn't like Monsters, Inc. enough to think that Monsters University was going to break through for me, even though Monsters, Inc. is Pete Doctor. That is, like, the one that doesn't, like, stand out for me. Um, there's one more that I'm forgetting that I haven't seen, but, oh, well, no, I saw a good dinosaur, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> but, look, uh, anyway, that aside, this is top five i think i have it i was doing i i was tracking my pixar movies earlier this year when i was re-watching again a bunch of them up sort of like through 2010 through toy story 3 basically i rewatched um all those up till then and i have this right now at number four you know behind ratatouille behind inside out um and toy story 3 toy story 3 is um 
my number three. And then this is four. And I think that's only could go up over time. Honestly, I think that I could see this getting up there with Inside Out and Ratatouille and passing Toy Story 3 as much as I, I mean, it's like crazy to compare this, you know, any movies to those six. They're some of the best movies of all time. But uh, look, I loved this movie. It's incredible. And I think I mentioned this earlier already. I can't remember what I mentioned on or off air, but um, like I can see this, like for those of you who are longtime listeners of the podcast, you know, like how much I adored book smart and knives out and their rewatch factor last year. Like I, the like, soul is the closest thing to that. Me this year, like, you know, Palm Springs, like maybe was that as well. Like really enjoyable, like comedy romp, but like this is just feels like another tier and like up there with something that you might get from a knives out or a book smart where not only is it fun to watch like a Palm Springs was earlier this year, but like there's actually like some pretty deep meaning there in some ways less. I mean, knives out maybe a little bit less. So just a lot of fun, an innovative take on the genre, but like Booksmart, I think there's certainly a lot, a lot, a lot deeper there to, to pick out. And I think soul is that way too. And I could definitely see this going up, um, in my all time and, and seeing where it lands, you know, months, years from now, will be interesting. All right, Scott, favorite scene or moment. Uh, well, just cause we haven't mentioned it. There's a great joke about the New York Knicks in there, uh, <laughs> that, that I think is the one joke that I was like, okay, this one's for the adults. Um, talking 22, basically talking about like messing with stuff on earth because she doesn't like earth, whatever. Um, and so yeah. she mentions that she's been messing with the Knicks for years. Um, and yeah, it, it got a good laugh from me. Yeah. There's a lot of really, I, we haven't talked about this this much, I guess, but like, I found this to be just genuinely one of the funniest movies that I've seen this year. I thought it was so funny. A lot of the sort of gags and one liners they get specifically as it relates to like the soul realm really work for me. I think that the Knicks joke was a good one. I definitely laughed out loud at that one. I loved like all of the Terry gags that they did with, with that character. And uh, one of my favorites that I'll mention here is the whole notion of, of them, like giving him a trophy that he requests, like to make himself feel, feel good after he, after he finds, I just found that to be so, so funny. And I can just totally picture that character of Terry in, in my mind. And uh, also as it relates to Terry, I love, we talked about production and like visual design earlier. I really love this whole, like how he like, man, like, or I shouldn't say he, how she moves around the world. Like with the like in the lines of the animation, like on like she's in like the stop like the stop walk um, sign, and then goes over into like the like the lines of the brick wall. It's like really really cool mm -hmm. way to to watch her move around, yeah. you know, you know, real world New York City. Yeah, I I agree. Yeah, love love this movie. Love this movie, Scott. All right, out of ten, what are you giving it? Yeah, I'm with you. This is one of my favorite movies of the year as well. Um, I thought I was going to like it, but I think I liked it even more than I expected. 9.4. Ooh. Yeah, same for me. I'll like, I'm not going to hide the eight ball. We have like a month before we're going to do our top 10 of the year and a lot more movies, I think, at least for me to watch before then. But right now, this film sits at number two for me. And it, we'll see if it ekes out Sound of Metal right now at my number one. Um, but yeah, it's my number two right now. And it's sitting there because I'm giving it a 9.5. And it, again, on a rewatch, I think it could get better. We'll see. Alrighty, Scott, that should do it for episode 122. Do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today? Um, not really. Uh, I'm trying to avoid last place in my uh, fantasy league uh, oh, no. and the, the punishment that comes with that. So I'm is, a little the punishment. But Waffle House challenge. You got to go to Waffle House for 24 hours and it's one hour off for each waffle you eat. Okay. 
So the goal would be that you you eat like 20 waffles then and you'll have to sit there for four hours. Yeah, but I can't do that. I weigh 135 pounds. So, well, not with that attitude. You can't <laughs> not with any attitude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> That's fun. I've never heard of that before. That sounds horrible. I don't want, I don't want that. Oh yeah. Either. It's creative. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, is that, is that every single year for your fantasy league? Last year they had to take the SAT. Was That's the funny. That's funny. I think I'd rather that. Our commissioner, our commissioner, he hasn't got had to do it yet, though, because of COVID, but he's going to. So. That's funny. Well, yeah. maybe you can, uh, in solidarity, if you do end up finishing last place, you can uh, do the Waffle House Challenge the same day that he does the SAT. Yeah, maybe so. All right, where can people find you on Twitter? At Scarvey Dent. And I can be found at Shelton2013 over on Twitter as well as Letterboxd. You can also follow our podcast on Twitter at Pods. You can subscribe to our newsletter using the link in the episode notes. And check out our podcast Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Pods. Scott, any update on the newsletter? Are we getting the newsletter anytime soon? Not, not, I'm not adding you on the podcast no, right now. No comment. <laughs> no comment. All right. So well, look, I, I would love to be able to have yeah, the totally. time to do it. It's just with work and everything. Um, yeah. It doesn't always allow for me because I mean, when I, you know, peek behind the curtain in the past, I would type that out in the morning and then send it out in, you know, at noon, whatever, whenever I sent it out on Friday. Well, obviously, I don't have the mornings or anything like that to do that anymore. So, yeah. um, And figure out motivation after work at night. I feel you because I sometimes edit this podcast at like midnight. (laughs) That too. And I do things in the evenings a lot of times virtually. So, um, Yeah, if I find a time to make it work, I would love to get back to doing it, but I have no firm date at this time. Yeah, no, that's un- very understandable, at least um, for my book. But anyway, uh, you can follow us on, like I said, Twitter. Um, you can subscribe to the to the newsletter if and when it comes back. And yes, please check out our podcast Patreon page. If you can't uh, support us over there or you choose not to, that's okay. You can still find us on uh, pretty much anywhere you, that you get your podcasts, you know, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc., uh, where we'd appreciate it if you rated and reviewed as well as subscribed and shared. And with that, uh, that should do it. We really appreciate all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to us chat about two movies this time. Thanks for letting us do that extra long episode for you. Uh, we'll be back next week, not with a review of a new film this time, but with our top five TV shows of 2020. We aren't quite ready yet to do our top 10 movies of 2020. So in honor of it being the new year, uh, we do want to release a 2020 uh, review type episode for that and so we thought we'll do our tv shows this time a little bit earlier than we did last year so until then uh for scott harvey i'm scott shelton we'll see you next time thanks for listening Thank you.